Welcome to Forge Comics. Your one-stop shop for discovering more about comic book characters, stories, and general analysis of these epic tales. So join us on this journey across mediums and multiverses to learn more about the amazing world of comics. I'm Trey. This is Jojo. And I'm Petey. Welcome back. We're glad you're here. We're going to open with some comic book news. Uh, Biggest, probably most important thing we're going to mention today is that one of the CW's Powerpuff actresses dropped out of their live production. I have no more information. I don't know which one it is. I don't know the actress. I don't know who they're going to replace her with. I have nothing else for you, um, but I was pretty devastated to read that. That is so tragic. I feel so bad as well. Um, so in other news, slightly less important, uh, Scarlett Johansson's lawsuit is still going on against Disney, and from everything that I'm seeing, I've seen she has every right to the money that she is asking for, because Disney kind of screwed her over, so we will see how that plays out, but that's my opinion on the matter. Team ScarJo here, right? Yep. And then the first episode of What If dropped today, um... Neither one of us has seen it, so no spoilers for us, which is kind of nice. But I am excited to check that out. So there's that. Not much news, though, in the pipeline. Excellent. So we're going to talk about, actually, probably, if I'm not mistaken, the most recent comic book series. This will be our most recent comic book series that we're going to recap. This one just hit Marvel Unlimited, which means it's like three months old now. And we're going to be talking about Donny Cates' run in King in Black. So, just a couple of quick spoiler alert notifications. We are going to be talking about King in Black, possibly some Invincible spoilers, Avatar The Last Airbender, which I don't know if that counts anymore, and then um, we are going to talk about Star Wars. So, if you don't know much about Star Wars, then too bad. <laughs> anything else you guys want to point? Any other spoilers? Anything else you want to say before we get started? Yeah, so The Invincible is for the comic book series. So, just so you know, if you've watched the show, great. We're probably going to touch a little bit into a lot further on in the series and the comics, just so you get an idea of where we're going. All right, so we're going to talk about King in Black. King in Black is a brand new Marvel run, as mentioned before, and it involves Venom, most of the Avengers, a couple of X-Men, and then a lot of the street-level heroes in New York. So to start us off, who is the King in Black? The King in Black is an entity known as Null, spelled K-N-U-L-L. The K is silent. And he is basically the god, creator, master, leader, whatever, of all the symbiotes. I don't want to go into any more detail than that because it's very confusing and doesn't make a lot of sense. But this series kicks off with Eddie Brock sensing that Null is coming to Earth, and he can do this through his symbiote, who, at this point, they have a fully functioning uh, relationship. They're basically bona fide superheroes, and they work well together, and they both care about each other and look out for each other. Initially, only the Marvel Knights, the Avengers, and that small handful of X-Men are available. Uh, It starts off with Thor being off-world and not not reachable. He's got his own stuff going on. If anybody else is reading his current run, uh, he's pretty busy. Mjolnir is acting up, so he's he's not quite disposable. Starts with Eddie's son, Dylan, showing that he has the power to connect to what's called the Symbiote Hive. That is basically Null shows up with millions and millions of symbiotes, wraps the world up in a giant web of basically venom fluid, and Dylan finds out that he can connect with it. And as a result, Null wants to abduct him. 
So Noel goes straight for Eddie, basically takes him up to the top of what I believe is the Empire State Building. Might be the Avengers Tower. I can't remember. Um, basically rips the Venom symbiote off of him, tells him that he's going to go take his son because of his superpower that allows him to even have even further control over the symbiotes, and then throws Eddie off the building. The What's really interesting here is the Venom run that is going side by side with Noel, which I feel pretty strongly is the most important tie-in. All of that basically takes place while Eddie is falling. Uh, he's falling and he goes through his past and he sees some of the, you know, the mistakes he's made, the sins he's committed, the people he's hurt. And a recurring theme here is how Eddie is kind of coming to grips with the fact that he's caused a lot of pain and he's trying to do better, but he, he still can't outrun it as it's going to negatively affect his son, Dylan, um, both figuratively and literally as Noel basically a result of his bonding with Venom is going to go kidnap and probably kill his son. <clears throat> so that is kind of a, an existential crisis he goes through while falling through the air and inevitably hitting the ground and basically dying. It becomes kind of unclear if he died or not. He goes into kind of a spirit world that is described as being within the Codex or the Hive. There's not a lot of detail given here, but here he runs into Flash Thompson, who previously had been Agent Venom before he died, but is apparently living on in some kind of spiritual symbiote form inside. So it gets a little trippy uh, while they're in the hive, but it's pretty cool that Eddie is shown some of the capabilities that they have while in there. And one recurring theme with this story is it is a little fan service -y. You've got Agent Venom turning into a giant Venom dragon and a couple other things, but it, it does have a lot of payoff at the end. So while this is going on, each of the other Avengers kind of have their own tie-in, and they're at one point, almost all of them are overcome by the Venom symbiote and fight them off in some form or another. Captain America is taken over and starts to feel like he's maybe not the hero he he give, is given credit for being, and Daredevil, you know, actually outright, I think, fights off his symbiote, and then it throws himself in an electric chair and takes on, like, the full lethal amount of voltage to to reject the symbiote so there's a couple of really cool encounters that take place nothing that really moves the needle plot wise though which is which is good because you don't want to have to read all those tie-ins yeah so something on that that i like so i read some of the tie-ins to this and then with other events that i've read and i like it when the tie-ins help add context to the story but they don't feel necessary and that's how i felt with a lot of these tie-ins where reading them is good it was helpful i definitely felt like they were worth reading Daredevil one was cool. The Captain America one was good. Kind of see him struggle with his inner demons. A lot of it was really cool. But I purposefully read King and Black all the way through just the story. And then I went into the tie-in. So I wanted to make sure I could read the King and Black storyline and understand it without reading the tie-ins. So even before I went and read Venom and all the other stories that we decided to kind of read with the tie-ins, I thought it was beneficial to read it by itself and then go read the tie-ins. Even if it timeline doesn't match up, it helps to kind of just add more to the story yeah i think i think p made a great point though and what you get when you read the tie-ins in this situation is that you you get kind of the oppre oppressive nature of null and basically how desperate things get how the entire you've got heroes basically on krakoa or on other islands or on other nations that are experiencing the same blackout the same invasion so it really gives you the full scale of what's going on which you might not get if you just read Eddie and you thought, eh, I know they're showing the entire world, but it really just feels like this is limited in New York. So that is a, that is a positive, even if even if you only read a couple tie-ins. So as one would expect when dealing with an intergalactic being of darkness, 
Uh, a familiar friend comes to save the day. Probably the only likable character from the Fantastic Four. Hot take. Somebody's going to tweet me. Uh, the Silver Surfer shows up. He grabs what's called the uh, Enigma Force. And if you have questions about the Enigma Force, rest assured, I have no answers for you. I do not know anything about it. It seems like a weird uh, kind of ace up the sleeve that Marvel just kind of whips out when they need to beat a big bad. So... He brings it with him, shows up, basically stares down Null, turns his surfboard into a sword. So that's fan service item number 274 from this series. And basically says, let's fight. And he expects the Enigma Force to bond with him, similar to how a symbiote would, and to make him more powerful. So at some point previous to the Silver Surfer showing up, Eddie Brock broke through the symbiote hive, turned into a giant venom, and started kind of King Konging his way across the city. So there's just another kind of really cool scene that didn't hold a lot of weight. He didn't even maintain this form for like two pages, I think. But as soon as he kind of reaches the the apex of the fight, the Enigma Force chooses him and it gets even more fan servicey. And we see basically a Venom combined with Light who <laughs> basically just waving his hands summons Mjolnir from Thor and this, the... Um, the surfboard sword from Surfer, and then kind of like slams them together to make a giant, less cool-looking axe. Did I, did I miss anything? Does that sound pretty pretty accurate? I thought yeah. it looked cool, but I was very confused with where the wood came from. <laughs> <laughs> Great. What, what, I didn't even notice. Joe's over here sitting like this doesn't this doesn't add up. There was no wood in this equation. <laughs> yeah. Silver Surfer. Maybe there was some wood in the surfboard, but I mean that would make a pretty weak sword. Well, the handle, the handle sword of Mjolnir. The handle of Mjolnir's wood, but you know you can't. Oh, right, right, you right. can't increase mass, and there's only like six inches of of wood. So there's some real problems here. I, you know what? This just went a whole. The dads went down a whole star in my book. <laughs> um, no, and all, all kidding aside, the summoning of Mjolnir is actually really cool and I believe to be symbolic. And side note slash spoiler for the Thor run, it would carry a lot more weight if almost everyone and their mother weren't picking up Mjolnir in the Thor run. And I almost think, I'm getting a little bit off topic here, but I almost think that they're banking on you not knowing that. Because literally at this point in the Thor run, Loki has picked up the hammer a random guy who you served time for like petty theft picked up the hammer like six people in the marvel current iteration of thor have picked up the hammer so a little confusing but as far as there's still some worthiness required obviously and that's kind of what they're trying to illustrate there i believe that that he's now kind of come full circle and become the hero that everyone else has been telling him that he is all right so Eddie, with his new Mjolnir sword hammer thingy, proceeds to absolutely thrash Noel. I don't know if Noel really does anything successfully to defend himself at this point. It's pretty much like game over once the sword uh, and axe combine, and he just gets worked. And then he gets defeated essentially by the, the force of the Enigma Force, and the light kind of banishes him. And what takes place is very interesting. Basically, the symbiotes kind of all are freed essentially everyone they've taken over is becomes free and the symbiotes themselves are now freed which is illustrated by i think they have like a red bullseye on their head when they're being controlled 
and if you guys caught that too, and they kind of all swarm around Venom, except not menacingly at all, and they basically indicate to him that there's a vacuum of leadership, and that they only operate with kind of a hive mind and a leader, and they basically offer the mantle of King in Black to Venom, which he accepts, and then flies away. I have a quick question before we move on. Was King in Black supposed to, like, reboot the universe or anything? Or what was the purpose of this storyline? Because, like, in DC, when you get these big events or secret wars, even in Marvel, it's usually to kind of push the narrative further and into, like, a new area. Is that what happens with King in Black? Or is it just, like, a cool event to kind of celebrate Venom? No, not at all. I don't think... Well, I can't speak for DC, but I don't think... Marvel looks at every crossover event as earth-shattering. A lot of times okay. it's just a way to tie in a lot of runs that are going at the same time. Because if you think about it, they're all running parallel. And then they want to introduce you to other runs. So they tie them all together for two, three, four issues in hopes that you'll be like, oh, wow, Thor looks really cool now. Let me go read his run. I mean, it's it's a, it's a sales thing if there's no denying. But yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's what I mean, comics does. I was curious because, I mean, with DC... You'll get big events with, like, the Bat family or with the Superman family, but it's pretty rare that you get them, like, across the whole universe unless it's going to shatter the universe. So it's it's interesting that Marvel does do a big event like that just to do a big event. I think that's – it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing, I think. It's just different. Well, they're on a big Venom kick, too. They've rebranded – like, they've done – I can just think of the Funko Pops. They've basically re-Funko Popped every character twice in the last three years with, like, Venomization. Um, and prior to this, they just beat – they beat up Carnage, and then the Carnage show is coming out. So they're clearly, they're clearly cashing in on, and the Venom, yeah, the Venom movie. Whatever. They're clearly cashing in on the fact that people like that. I, th- I think it's almost dead though. Like I'm kind of, I used to love Venom as a kid, and I'm kind of over the whole like slap a symbiote on every hero and they're instantly cooler. I don't know about you guys. I agree. Yeah. I will say though that the art, if anything, is what kept me going because it was like the story was pretty cool but it was just like the detail in a lot of those panels was just like man this is so cool oh if you like the art you should for sure read the thor the newest thor run it's awesome it's right i will say aside from the venom stuff my favorite whole my whole moment that i loved in this was when thor came in i was like okay i'm reading the thor run by donny cates because this is so cool like just the way he's the way he's drawn the fights he has, even his, like, ridiculous cheesy dialogue seemed like it fit for the character. Like, it didn't seem off-putting, which usually Thor's dialogue drives me crazy in comics. But I liked it a lot in this. I thought it was awesome. With the King in Black being a, a really interesting take on Venom, take on kind of the full conclusion to Eddie Brock and his his redemptive arc, we wanted to take this and kind of create a discussion as a whole for redemptive arcs in comics and what those look like, what are the important aspects, and then some of the main characters that have either experienced these arcs or in the process or have flirted with them and ultimately remained where they started. So Pete's going to take us through a little bit of what, what makes up a redemptive arc, and then we'll talk about the different types here in a sec. Yeah, thanks. So it was really interesting as I was doing the research for this. I mean, I think we all know the the basic idea of a redemption arc. It's nothing new to us. It's just the idea of basically having a villain, having someone who has who's evil, and then them atoning for their flaws and overcoming them, transforming them from a villain to a hero. 
Uh, we have a lot of classic examples. Um, one of the most classic examples that I think of that's completely outside of this is Charles Dickens and you get Scrooge. It's a very good redemption arc that you get during Christmas time. But since then, it's obviously evolved a lot more. You even get it back in. I mean, Greek mythology has it too. So you have these things of Hercules who has to overcome basically the whatever his trials are. And you have all these types of characters who have to redeem themselves for the, the acts that they've committed, which are evil. Um, I was curious to kind of find out what it is in modern times. And the biggest thing I could find was that there's two aspects to a redemption arc, uh, especially in comics and pop culture, TV, whatever it is. Uh, the first one is pretty obvious. It's repentance. So they have to have a decisive action that proves that the character has made a transformation. Pretty obvious, uh, basically the climax of the story. What I wasn't aware of that I thought was cool is that there's the acceptance as well. So in order to be uh, recognized as a transformed character, other key characters in the story or other key characters in this sense in comics in that universe have to recognize the transformation. If they don't acknowledge that that character has changed, they will not obtain the title of a hero. So with King and Black in mind, um, what do you guys think are kind of Eddie Brock's repentance moments and his acceptance moments? I think the the uh, repentance, I guess, process was probably when he centers his reasoning and focus around Dylan, his son. Um, and that becomes his reason to fight. Yeah. Yeah, re reading this through, I felt that a lot of his repentance had taken place either off panel or in, you know, issues preceding this run. And he was kind of in this stage where he needed to accept himself in this new phase. It even, it, I believe it was in the Spider-Man tie-in. Basically, everyone else has said, like, Eddie, you need to chill out and forgive yourself. You know, you've been you've been doing good for a while now, and we all see it. You're the only one that's holding on to your past self, which I think it's an interesting concept that, you know, obviously heroes and villains, villains are the, the primary people we see go through redemptive arcs. But I think plenty of heroes go through redemptive arcs, like even in the, the Avatar The Last Airbender, Aang has to you know, essentially redeem himself for the mistakes that he made, what, 100 plus years yeah. ago. And I think the re the acceptance by others comes often faster than that inner acceptance. But that inner acceptance is going to do is, is often holding people back way more than than what others think. Yeah, I agree. I thought it was interesting that when I was reading this, that it says they have to be accepted by somebody else to be considered a hero. I'm like, that's kind of low. It's like, even if they do great things, if no one else sees it, then it doesn't count. Like, I mean, it, he's been doing great things for a while and he won't get recognized until somebody else says something. One of the moments in King and Black that he does get accepted is kind of that same thing that you mentioned with Spider-Man. Agent Venom basically tells him the same thing where he's like, hey, you view me as a great hero, but I don't think you realize that we view, view you in that same light. And then Cage really drives this idea home by saying, look, we want you to accept yourself as a hero so much that we're going to take the embodiment of light or in other words the opposite of null and he picks you as his avatar or whatever so another way to show look you're a good guy you've redeemed yourself you can move on so any other comments about those kind of two two branches that you guys kind of saw in kingdom black yeah not to mention the the summoning of me older i mean thor's face said it all i think i think <laughs> 
I think it is important to evaluate this series as kind of an, an isolated event where not everyone and their mother has lifted Mjolnir. So it, it, it is pretty impactful to see him not just lift it. I guess that's not even the point. Not lift it, summon it from Thor's hand, which I, I would assume is a step <laughs> above just picking it up off the ground. Um, yeah, I think that that panel... I think it would be an accomplishment for a series or a run to have like an iconic panel that I hung on to for years. And that panel where he's holding Mjolnir and the sword is definitely going to stay with me for a long time. Yeah, I agree. I think that's another way to kind of show just how far he's come. Um, again, if you take it in a vacuum, <laughs> I, I understand that nowadays it's not as cool as it used to be to pick up Mjolnir, but summoning it from Thor's hand is, is a step above that for sure. <laughs> Um, I was looking into this further and I was seeing there's kind of two different types of redemption arcs that we see a lot of. There's basically one where the evil character has a breaking point and a disaster happens and they have to make a change in their life. Uh, in other words, for me, this one's basically, as far as I can tell, is mainly the deathbed repentance type idea, um, which I have some innate issues with. Like, I love Star Wars, but I hate the fact that Darth Vader is the one that saves the day in the end by killing the Emperor. Like, things like that kind of drive me mad, just because I feel like it's, okay, you've been evil this entire time, and now we're going to leave it to you to be the good guy to save the day. So, those are the types of things we get with the breaking point. I don't know, looking at Darth Vader as an example, do you guys think that's a good redemptive arc? Did you guys appreciate that redemption, or what's your thoughts? No, it feels like a cop-out, because it's building all this momentum and building up to you learning that Darth Vader is just like so evil and and then it's just like a, a flicker right like a light switch where all of a sudden he's now he's redeemed himself and and is repentant or repentive of his past doings and so it's it's just not really believable and it, it doesn't it doesn't uh I guess gets you emotionally like you're not invested. You're not emotionally invested. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. The Darth Vader style of of uh, redemption does absolutely nothing for me. I he didn't even cross my mind as a character who who, who had redeemed himself because I think the hardest part and it, from a literary perspective, the most interesting part of a, every character who has a long history of you know committing atrocities or whatever would be the consequences associated with that, coming to grips with those, facing those you've harmed and making good. The idea of doing one good thing right before you die and then avoiding all consequences, that I don't even know if I agree that that qualifies as redemption. Um, counterpoint, there's a, after Civil War II, which I know very little about, Dr. Doom takes up the mantle of Iron Man in a run called Infamous Iron Man. And Iron Man had passed away, I believe, in some for some reason. And Doom proceeds to, one by one, essentially, undo the bad things that he's done. Everyone hates him, and he has to deal with that, and he doesn't even try to convince them he's different. He just shows them by taking out all of the villains that he had, take, had, he had previously worked with. And actually, I think at one point, he's like responsible for the largest single-handed takedown of villains you know, in S.H.I.E.L.D. history. And even he continues to fight for redemption at that. And that is fascinating. I, again, not interested at all in Darth Vader doing one good thing and then dying. That is not, that doesn't make for a good character. 
Yeah, I think it continues on. This idea is very common. It does feel lazy, too, especially with, like, things like Darth Vader, where you don't really see him. If we're just taking it four, five, six, right? We're not looking at the prequels. We don't know anything about Anakin. And before episode six, episode four and five, we really don't see him struggling that much with his morality. And then out of the clear blue, it just comes out. So I, I see issues with it. I think another example of this that came to mind immediately, and I'm apologize is that it's not necessarily in comics, but there's a reason for that, why we don't have as many examples in continuity in comics. Um, another medium we see it in again is another movie with Spider-Man 2, Sam Raimi's Dr. Octopus. The same idea does all these horrible things, basically creates a nuclear bomb that's going to explode and then realizes, oh, I can take it down, so I'll take it down. And goes down with the shit. Similar idea, annoying. I love that movie, but looking back on that scene, it's just another way of a deathbed repentance. Am I off on that? What do you guys think? Funny that Darth Vader and Doc Ock both lose their wives through their own... Oh, their hubris, their own hubris. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. I, I do think that Doc Ox is a little bit, a little bit better because I don't think he's nearly as far gone, and yeah, he's yeah. not straight evil through the entire time. Like he's, he's still misguided. To obviously, you know, he does hurt. He does come to hurt people. Um, but yeah, Darth Vader doesn't. I mean, Darth Vader doesn't do anything redempt, redemptive wise at any point until he's just like, wait, no, don't kill my son, which choosing your son over your boss isn't even like <laughs> that big of a thing. Like, I don't even know that that's a heroic act in and of itself. Like that's, that's the bare minimum, man. Like that's it. That's yeah. I, I mean, also the guy murdered younglings. Let's just not, let's not forget about this. Like that, that's not redeemable. Oh no, I was in. I was watching the pitch meeting for, uh, what is it, episode three, where he goes bonkers, and, like, dude, Anakin's terrible. He's a terrible character. Like, it, it's all terrible, actually. There's, I would say even the prequels don't make him, like, an empathetic character. He's a, he's a monster in the third one. Like, he's an absolute monster. So I will not stand by Darth Vader redeeming himself. In my opinion, Darth Vader shouldn't have redeemed himself. He is a great villain, most iconic villain, probably in pop culture for the general public. And he should just remain that way. But that's just my my humble opinion. Um, there is a contrast to this. And I'll let Jojo kind of talk about this one a little bit more. That is the right way to do a redemption arc. Can you a little expand on that maybe? Yeah. So this is called the slow growth. So um, with the characters, you see them slowly start to come to the good side over the course of the series. And um, just kind of along the lines of what Pete was saying, the reason why... I, this works so well is because it's like true storytelling. It, it's really investing all of this time to develop this character and have them change because I mean, we as humans, we change all the time. So it makes it, it makes sense. And we're able to connect with them on a much deeper level. Like I, there's nothing I can really relate to as far as Darth Vader. Um, so it's, it, it's it's different, right? And so one of the one of the biggest examples, um, and PD, you can talk more about this, is Zuko. Um, I mean, this is probably the number one example when we were doing our research for this, right? Yeah, it's funny. So when we were starting to research on this, before we even started doing research, when we were talking about redemption arcs, I put down immediately talk about Zuko because he is the best example of a redemption arc in 
anything. <laughs> uh, he's the quintessential example, in my opinion. And then I was comforted as we did the research, finding that that's a general consensus. Uh, the reason why I think is because he does start out as the series. He's presented as basically the big bad. You kind of know that there's this fire lord Ozai, but you don't even see his face for the first, I think, season and a half, maybe even two seasons, if I'm not mistaken. And so Zuko is basically the bad guy. He's the villain. And you don't see that much hope in him. Uh, at the end of the first season, you see him kind of let the Avatar go. You see things here and there, but it's never in your mind that this character is going to do a complete flip that he does. So it's good, but they do give you examples. I mean, Avatar Aang gets captured by somebody and Zuko releases him because he wants to be the one to pick him up and to turn him in. So like, wait, did he do it because of that? Or maybe because he does have some sort of compassion. And so these little notes here and there. Um, and then season two, you get more into the background of, okay, now I really see maybe the whole Fire, Fire Nation does have some issues and I'm not sure I agree with them. And then season three is where you see him really struggle. He's accepted back into the Fire Nation and in this acceptance, he realizes it's not where he belongs. And you see him basically face off against his father and say, I'm going to go train the Avatar and he's going to come beat you. And so there's a lot more to that. I don't want to go into it too much because, I mean, I would hope you guys have all seen the show at this point. But if you haven't, there are some really great moments for Zuko. Uh, again, he's an incredible character. He is the quintessential idea of a redemption arc because, as we mentioned off the podcast, something that George had said and all, that you kind of expand on that. It's this idea of a slow burner. Um, his growth is so slow, but you see him slowly make these good choices despite his situation. Um, I mean, I can go on for hours about this, but I don't know. What do you guys think? I do you guys, I know you're not as familiar with it. Are you guys familiar with Zuko's arc at all? Have you guys been able to kind of look into it? Yeah, I think Zuko shares what a lot of other characters that we're going to talk about in this small segment share. And, and again, spoilers for Invincible here, so cut out if you must. Um, what you see with Zuko is what you see with Omni-Man and even Damian Wayne is what's presented as evil is uh, really a result of their upbringing and their culture to a certain extent. And I think that's part of why they are even capable of being redeemed. You look at Omni-Man in the comics, I want to point out in the comics is an important distinction because in the show he goes on a murder rampage that is a lot different than anything he does in the comics. He doesn't just senselessly murder humans in the comics. He does compare them to ants, but doesn't feel the need to demonstrate that he really believes that. Um, you know, Omni-Man was raised in a Spartan culture where they, the only way they knew how to survive as a society was to dominate other planets, get them to subject to being, you know, part of the Viltrum Empire, and then, you know, they would offer them protection. And if they, if they resisted, well, Viltrum needed the resources, so they would fight who fought back. It, that's a believable, for someone to start there as an enemy to the Earth and come around is believable because... That was simply his culture, and he was able to come to grips that his culture might not be correct. And he ends up taking, you know, a significant leadership role within the Viltrum Empire and really coming full circle and becoming quite the leader, uh, a bona fide hero. And really, you see this hinted at in season one, and definitely in volume one, but he starts to question the Viltrum Empire fairly early in the story, which lends itself to, to the readers buying in to his redemptive arc. 
another character that I actually just thought of that but that's kind of relevant because we just watched the entire series of him. But Loki, do you guys think that Loki would go in the slow growth? This is an interesting discussion. <laughs> Loki to me is kind of caught in this loop um that we would call the eternal second act of comics because he's kind of an anti-hero. He does good things here and there, then he gets pulled back into his role as this mischievous character. And it is problematic in comics because if it's not something like Omni-Man where you know, okay, in Invincible, I've got 150 issues, then we're done. You're constantly going to have to pull them back to being their root character to be able to continue to tell the story. So I think Loki has his redeeming moments, but again, he gets pulled back into this eternal loop that we see in comics a lot of the times. And I think that that's typically accomplished through you know, a death and a rebirth or a brainwashing or something. But the reality is if we look at the MCU and we say, okay, if Loki continues this growth and we're still watching him on screen three, four, five years from now, he won't be Loki anymore. He might be a good guy, but it's not the character that sold a bunch of toys and got a bunch of fans. And that's problematic. Um, If they do a really, really good job, he could become something else. They typically don't bother doing that, if I'm being honest. Like, I mean, Venom's been around for, like, 30 years. And I think just in the last, like, three years, he's basically, like, a bona fide superhero. Because they were always afraid to... They, they still wanted to be able to fall back on that cinematic picture of Venom fighting Spider-Man. And if they're both superheroes, why would they do that? You know? it's it, These are soap operas, people. I mean, this, this is what they are. They can't change the formula too dramatically or it doesn't work anymore. Yeah, and I'll even go out to say... I think him as King in Black and as this good this good hero lasts maybe a couple years, and then something's going to bring him back to being Eddie Brock, the anti-hero slash villain who occasionally fights Spider-Man. I don't think King in Black is going to last forever, unfortunately, because I think he's a really cool character, great design, cool to see him have this, but eventually it's going to get knocked back down to we need to fight him against Spider-Man because it looks cool. <laughs> well, it's interesting that you say that because, like, in the discussion with Flash Thompson, he basically says, like, we've all made mistakes. All of us heroes have made mistakes. He's like, just because you're not on the same level as, like, Spider-Man or Cap, which, you know, ironically, we've had these discussions before, uh, especially with Cap, he's not really relatable, right? Because he's too, too perfect, right? He's not human enough. So it's it's funny that that's even brought up in conversation with Eddie Brock and with Flash Thompson. I think obviously Venom is the perfect spot to, to kind of take off with this next segment, being a main major character who has been presented as going through a redemption arc. And we've kind of discussed whether or not he needed it. I think we're all on the same page. He was at one point kind of a villain, more of an anti-hero, and was in need of being redeemed. I want to talk about two characters who occupy very similar roles in the Marvel universe. And how they're regularly portrayed by Marvel. And those are Magneto and Doom. And these guys fascinate me because I think it begs, let's start with Magneto. It begs the question, one, do they need to be redeemed? Joe, what is your understanding of Magneto's motivation? My understanding of his motivation is that he wants mutants to be respected just as equally as human beings, just as us. Maybe more, maybe a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. And Pete, is that, I, all right, let me ask you this. Do you think he needs to be redeemed? Is he a villain? 
that's the first question is he a villain and in my opinion he's not a villain because he has the perspective of what he thinks he's doing is right and he does flirt with the line a little bit according to what he wants so his ethics may be a little bit off but it's he's not straight evil like noel or some of these other characters he's not just doing evil acts which makes it hard to say that he needs to be redeemed because i don't think he does well is he or okay yeah did i jump ahead sorry no 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 are his acts i'm trying to think it's hard to talk about a character who has that who has so much time on screen and so many panels because he's obviously done evil things but if you look at him as a concept if you're a small mutant boy you know in a world where mutants are discriminated against is magneto in any shape or form a villain to you I would argue strongly that he's not. He's basically a savior figure. Now, he's got some violent means, but you could easily argue that those means are necessary in a world where mutants are persecuted and basically, you know, a lot of people want to exterminate them. That's a very common sentiment throughout X-Men comics. There's a lot of people that try to basically eliminate the mutant race. So I think we, I think Marvel Comics, almost without fail, across the board, has presented Magneto as basically a villain and really, he's just a leader of a population that that of which we are not members, which I think is fascinating because they do the same thing with Doom. All right. So the other question I would have, and I don't know if you guys you guys haven't read much of his the newest run, where they are basically the X Men have established Krakoa as a sovereign nation, and not only a sovereign nation. I mean, they are like the top nation in the world. They have access to crazy medicine. They are respected around the world. They they have they have the most elite fighting forces and they found a way to basically bring mutants back from the dead they they jump straight to the top of the list so he's a member of that group and a member of the founding leadership group that established the rule of um we shall kill no man so from what you guys have read and seen from the things i've shared with you about this new x-men run do you think he's changed has he we've kind of established that he didn't need redemption on a large scale but do, does your not to your knowledge of magneto has he changed at all not really in my opinion because this isn't the first time that magneto's established kind of a mutant utopia i mean it's been done even in like x-men evolution it happened too even in tv so i think it's a pretty common concept that they brought back i think in the ideal situation magneto running his own utopian society of mutants separate from the world is probably his best location because it allows him to be that king and that savior figure without even having to interact with the humans yeah he we'll get into this once we talk about the next character but he's he's just an extreme leader but his i guess his drive is really all-encompassing it's not like for his own gain it's really to to help his own Right. And so, yeah, his his actions and even some of his beliefs may be uh, extreme, but yeah, I, I I agree with PD and probably with you, Trey, that he's he's probably not a villain, but I'm not sure if he has changed. I mean, I would I would have to I'm just thinking of like the movies, right? I, I haven't read a lot of the comics with him in it, so um in one of them though i can't remember which one where he has like a family and he's like then x-men into the days of future past i think i think 
Oh, okay. Yeah. So I guess they like have tried to do that. So he's not just a straight up like villain. You can kind of relate to him more. Yeah, I think I think my kind of final answer here would to does he actually change? I would say no, not really. His goals remain the same. He his leverage in accomplishing those goals and his position in the world has changed to where his previous somewhat excessive means are no longer necessary. And as a result, he continues to follow kind of his established mantra, albeit with, with a different role in society. But ultimately, he is still going to put mutant um, mutant well-being above everything else. So, Joe, I know you're, you're a pretty big Doom fan. I brought you over to Team, uh, team Victor here. Uh, let me ask you those same questions. Is, is he really we, – we've kind of established – is he really a villain? No, Doom is is not is not a villain, and I, I'm pretty sure I brought this up before. But there's that phrase, and I'm probably butchering it, but they say like the history is written by the victors. No pun intended, because it's Victor Doom. Oh, <laughs> got him! Wow. But this kind of like separates for me, anyways. This separates. This is the big thing that separates Doom and Magneto. Um, Magneto, the mutants and the X-Men, they're always written in a narrative where, like, the narrator is human. We're human. So as us reading this, like, I guess you could say we're the victors. And so the that's the way that history is written. And so Magneto is labeled as this villain because from our perspective, he is a villain. But as you mentioned, if you were a mutant child, he would be a hero, right? And so Doom, along those lines, he's kind of like he's not a villain but his his intentions and the things that he does he's similar to i mean this is weird to say because i'm not saying he's a villain but now i'm comparing him to like stalin where <laughs> they like rewrite history right so for his people for doom's people in latveria he's amazing he's awesome and he takes care of them but his intentions behind it are very, very selfish. And that's similar to what happened in Russia, where everybody saw Stalin as like this hero and this amazing person. The Russians did. But that's because they didn't know he rewrote history, right? So they didn't know all of the, the terrible things that he had done. And that's very similar with Doom, is because his intentions, he wants to be in power. He wants to be in control for his own sake. I agree with a lot of what you said. I think... I do think that his ability and his leadership specifically to the nation he rules of Latveria <clears throat> is not I don't know if I don't know if it's really selfish it's, it, there's there's an arrogance there's definitely an arrogance and there's a belief that he is the best man for the job and it's kind of like he took over Latveria and proved that he was the right person for the job and the other things he's reached for, he has not proven to the same extent. And and I think, I, I guess the way I look at him is, most of the time when Doom is being, for lack of a better word, depicted as a villain, it's when he's clashing with a, a favorite of the podcast, Reed Richards and the Fantastic Four, or the Avengers. And he's essentially saying, let me solve the same problem, I'm just going to do it better. And they clash and they fight and all this stuff. But it goes back to, do the Avengers really have more jurisdiction than Doom does? Do the Fantastic Four, are they really sanctioned by the U.S. government? 
or whoever's being saved at the time. And if not, again, it's kind of interesting that Doom is so consistently painted as a villain. That said, I think the question becomes, does he actually change? And I think he does need redemption for certain actions because people do get hurt when he clashes with the Fantastic Four and, you know, and the Avengers at times. And I think he's one of the best examples of humbling himself and kind of going back to square one. And he does it, by my count, twice in the past, like, 15 years. There's the... Obviously, following Secret Wars, he kind of humbles himself. His humbles himself and returns to Latveria and kind of reinvents himself and doubling down on his leadership there. And then, obviously, as we mentioned before, there's the infamous Iron Man run where he literally goes back and tries to right each of his wrongs. So I think if you're looking for redemption in comics, the as much as I liked King in Black, I would have to say Doom and the infamous Iron Man run might be even more on the nose. Is that fairly new as well, that series? I believe the infamous Iron Man run was from 2008. Okay. Yeah, and I think it's hard to tell, too, because I think with King and Black, we don't know what Eddie's really doing that much yet with that new title. And so it's hard to say it's a full redemption. It's as good as some of these other ones because it's it's not done yet. So I think it would be telling in a couple months to see, okay, with his current issues, where has that taken him? What's he doing? I'm curious to what kind of issues he's going to be dealing with is this kind of, I mean, he's one of the probably most powerful beings in the Marvel universe right now with, with that symbiote and everything going on. So, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see what, what they do with him for sure. Well, worth, worth mentioning the Enigma force did leave him immediately. So oh. he's, he's just, well, but he, again, he is leader of all of the symbiotes at this point. Yeah. So point stands. Um, so one more thing that I wanted to mention, we talked about these leaders um, I think another great example of these leaders who some might say need redemption, some might disagree. Um, a really good example is Black Adam uh, over at DC. The reason why I think he's worth mentioning, because I do think if you look at The Rock and the way he's promoting this character, he's basically saying, oh, he's an anti-hero. And so he's skipping over all the history of him against Shazam and being a villain, a straight villain. Um, but in modern comics, Black Adam is definitely seen more as an anti, anti-hero in the sense that he is the leader of his own country and everything he does is in light of that. Uh, two of the stories that I wanted to mention that he does this the most in, one of them is 52, where basically the trinity of the DC universe isn't around and he's leading his own country and people are coming to him saying that he doesn't have the right to do this. And he basically uh, finds a bunch of supervillains that came into his country looking for solace and murders them in front of everyone as an execution and saying, basically, I'm in conduct. This is my country. I'm the leader and everyone supports him in it in his country. And so, again, it's a pretty evil act. But in the light of the people there who are saying, I don't want these villains in my country, they appreciate what he's doing. Later on in the DC series, we see it again. Um, He's trying to keep his country safe from the zombie apocalypse, essentially. And everyone tries to kind of get in and he quarantines themselves off to the world and won't let anybody into their country. Um, Because, again, he's looking out for his own country. So it's the same idea of he's similar to Doom in a lot of aspects. This idea of very powerful um, very arrogant and very much assumes that his way is the best way. And so 
So I thought it was worth, worth mentioning that due to the fact that he kind of fits in that same realm of he may need to be redeemed, but does he see that? Do other people see that? Depends on their perspective. Yeah, I have not read much about Black Adam, but from your description, I'm guessing that he is very similar to Namor. Yeah, that's and a good example. I, I want to pose what I think is a very interesting question. So we've talked about four characters who mainstream may believe that they need redeemed, borderline villains. Here's the question. Is it problematic that the leaders of these other countries are considered at the very best to be anti-heroes because their actions contradict what America wants? I mean, for sure. I mean, definitely. I, I think it's a very political statement to say... Um, I mean, America has a history, a history of trying to push our ways in other countries, um, yeah. even if their countries are are stable and working. So, I mean, I was, obviously, it's not the case a lot of the times, but we do push our ways on other people. So, again, that's kind of what we're seeing in comics. Even if they're running smoothly, I mean, Doom has a functional government, but we don't think that's good because it's different from our ways. Well, I think the, the issue is more that just in general, they have motives and are looking out for either races of people like the mutants or, you know, citizens of another country and clash with our American superheroes. And they're viewed at least at least as being gray, whereas and this should not come as a surprise based on what we've discussed so far. Black Panther is, is kind of the exception here, but he is on very, very good terms with Namor. So I think that's just an interesting dynamic. The one kind of exalted leader of another country who bears a superhero mantle is uh, buddies with another leader of a nation who is a superhero. So I think there's like an understanding there that it's almost like there's an understanding there that the American superheroes don't understand us and we've got to stick together. Like I feel like I feel like Doom, Namor, Black Panther, and Black Adam would would really like to get a drink with each other one time one day well i mean think about it though too it makes sense i mean what do what does iron man carry on his shoulders compared to black panther and compared to namor who are literally leading nations i mean actually yeah. nothing even money compared to those no even financially he's probably got nothing he's at least on par with them but not he's not significantly wealthier but you know what I mean? He doesn't have the load of the or the weight of dealing with a political system and trying to keep a country from going under. That's a pretty heavy burden to bear. You know what's hilarious is neither does Cap. <laughs> They're pretty uh, yeah, I agree. Does. Like, and that's what's so interesting is these characters make all these decisions that are that are hard and they're gray. And even the comic book world, which isn't afraid to make a statement on, you know, politics paints them in a bad light and the reality is those decisions are way different than what a group of superheroes who are funded by tony stark have to do on a daily basis i think i think there's a team up coming in the future between well black adam may not make the cut because he's not marvel but you know like superhero world leaders would make for like a fascinating fascinating run that so, would be pretty interesting yeah, I'm I, I'm down for it. So we've talked about the main two types of redemptive arcs, the breaking point and the slow burn. And then kind of in conclusion, there is another spectrum where characters sort of flirt with redemption, 
and never quite make it across the, the hump. We discussed this a little bit with Loki. I think another good example would be Godspeed. And, and obviously the question becomes, you know, how much is, uh, how much is redeemable? But what, what are your thoughts on that and, and the, the kind of eternal act to soap opera nature of comic books? Yeah. So one thing I want to say about Godspeed that I, I'm going to spoil something really big here, but it's relevant to this story. So in modern Flash continuity, Godspeed is not around because at the end of the last Flash run, he dies and <laughs> saving the Flash from reverse Flash. And so it goes to this idea again of doing a heroic act. He solidifies himself kind of as a martyr and as a hero. And so as much as I loved Godspeed's run up to this point, seeing him die in this similar light as deathbed repentance kind of bothers me. Um, and again, I, he'll probably come back and he'll probably come back as an anti-hero again. I'm sure we'll see it. Um, but I think he's a good example. I think the, this eternal act two of comics, it's kind of ironic because it's, it's so interesting because it gives us good stories for years and we always have new lights on the, on the current characters, but we do very seldomly see a character take on a role that lasts for years rather than just a few issues. So what would it take then? I guess is the big question. What would it take in this instance for Godspeed to achieve redemption? Let's say he comes back via the Speed Force. Now what does he have to do? I'll be honest. I think he has to take on the role as a Flash to be considered as a hero for, more, for, for most people. But so just becoming the Flash would be redemptive, would, would basically complete the loop? I think he's done plenty to redeem himself. He fought against a huge villain, but I think for general public to say, oh yeah, he's a hero, He, especially in the Flash family where everyone takes on that name at some point, I feel like to be considered a hero by the general public, he would have to take on the name as a Flash and be the main superhero in that continuity. What do you guys think? I don't I don't know enough of like what he's <laughs> done. So if he were Flash, right now I'm saying no, that wouldn't be enough. Just because of what I know about him. I don't think that's enough. And to go, and maybe this was just a, a poor choice of words, but if they're really labeling him a, a martyr, I have a hard time believing that because if that'd be like labeling Vader as a martyr, just because you do a good act at the very end where you yeah. sacrifice yourself doesn't so, necessarily make you a martyr. So to add a little bit of context, I will say, I mean, he's done several good acts since when we last talked about him. I mean, he's fought the rogues. He's fought a huge villain that lasted for 10 issues. He was right by Flash's side. So, I mean, he has done enough redeeming things, in my opinion. I just don't think anyone's going to take him seriously until he, he dons that red, that red suit. But that's just my opinion as a diehard Flash fan. I like Godspeed a lot. I just don't see him being accepted as a hero until he fully accepts that role. I just think it's interesting. I think it's very interesting how much, how much more likely we are to forgive a, a comic book character than a real person. <laughs> like, ask me what it would take for a guy who kills eight children yeah, <laughs> and it it's uh, it's probably a lot different, but you know, obviously this is this is hyperbole, and we want to see these characters redeemed, and I and I and I think we all believe everyone can be redeemed. It's just what's it going to take? Um, 
I don't know. I don't know if it's if it's a balancing act and a character like Godspeed would have to save at least, you know, as many lives as he killed. You know, I don't know if it's that simple. I think you look at a character like Harley Quinn who I would argue her redemptive arc has been like 10 years long now, right? Like, I mean, she's still not really a hero. Maybe that's because they don't want her to be, but I I mean, like, I don't even feel like she's a hero. And how long, I mean, how long was she a villain for? She came around in the 90s, right? So, like, half of her career has been trending upward and still gray. So, I don't know that they can break out of that, really. Only because, again, it comes back to the formula doesn't work. If Harley Quinn is just buddy buddies with Superman, I don't think people will buy that. (laughs) Yeah, I... I agree. I don't think it's going to come to a point where I think if you start out as a villain in comics, I think it's very difficult to become a full full blown hero because you start out as gray. You're always going to be constantly pulled back towards that way. I will say I can move on to another example that I thought of um, Lex Luthor for a long time in the rebirth run. Um, wore a Superman, like Iron Man-esque suit, but donned the Superman symbol. And he did this for a long time. And the whole time, it's just like, okay, this is stupid. Why, what are you doing? Like, eventually you're going to take it off. You're going to go back to being Lex. Like, it was the same idea of like, are you really trying to redeem a character that's been evil or a villain for so long? I just, I struggle with seeing how you can redeem someone from that. Can you guys think of a way that you can redeem a villain in comics so that they stick as a hero? Unfortunately, I think it it just has to be the slow burn, long game approach. Yeah, that's it has to be like Zuko, where it happens super slowly, and you're never sure if they're really going to complete that that arc. If you're going to do something like Lex putting on a Superman suit, I would personally much rather see it in some kind of Marvel's What If, where it's like, oh, if two or three things had happened differently, Lex would have been a superhero, and now you see him in a different light. I just don't know. But again, if you're going to keep writing Lex Luthor into comics for the next 25 years, he can't just be the billionaire bad boy forever. And so you've got this kind of paradox of let's change the characters, but not too much. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a boomerang where they just go back and forth with these crazy ideas that will get readers to read, but eventually it's going to, or Pendulum, I should say, eventually it's going to come back to the middle. I think with Zuko, you can trust and respect when he's a villain, and you can trust and respect when he's good. And so with the issue comes up with like Lex Luthor when he puts on the, the Superman suit, or whatever it is, is you see right through it. You can't trust and you don't respect him for doing that, right? So it's just like, it doesn't do anything for the reader. And you have to be able to empathize with why they're bad in the first place. Again, it comes back to that same thing with Zuko. You get it. This is how he was raised. He's trying to impress his father, who he believes to be like the rightful ruler or whatever. Same thing with Omni-Man. You get why he tried to enslave the Earth. That's what they've been raised and trained since they were born thousands of years ago to do. And to break that mindset is, I think what sells it as a redemptive part is they're overcoming a culture not necessarily a personality flaw i think that is the biggest difference i think you that's it because that's the issue with these biggest like golden age villains is that they're just the villain like they're just a bad guy there's no real development of them and so they try to do that but it's hard to see them in a different role because again 
Zuko, his motive is very much, I'm tr he's trying to redeem himself with his father. And in the end, he realizes he doesn't need to redeem himself with his father. He needs to redeem his nation with the world. So it's the similar idea of redemption, but understanding where that redemption comes from. And like you said with Omni-Man, it's the same idea of he really doesn't understand anything other than that until he goes to Earth. And once he realizes what he can have and what Earth has to offer, that's what makes him make the change. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think if you look at Eddie Brock and the reason he is redeemable is because even at his worst, he was kind of selfish. He was never Cletus Cassidy, Carnage levels of manic murderer, whatever he was. I mean, he was a serial killer. You know, that, that's a completely different discussion than down on his luck, Eddie Brock using the symbiote to turn his career around and... I don't know, maybe he committed petty theft. I don't remember a lot of what he's done. I know he's more often than not teamed up with Spider-Man to save the day and ends up becoming basically the guardian of San, of San Francisco. So I think that that's definitely an achievable redemptive arc that we saw kind of wrap up here in King and Black and we'll, we'll verify as his, his arc moves forward. So I've got one other question I wanted to ask you guys that just came to my mind. Is there a character in comics, a villain right now, or even an anti-hero maybe, that you would like to see become a full-blown hero? It's hard to say that because, like, the reason why I, the villains that I really like, I like them because they are villains, right? Like, I like them that they are villains. So it's... I think that right there proves the point of why these villains will never see a full redemption arc in comics. Because... We like them as villains. Yeah, totally. I will say the cra I, I guess I don't have an answer for you because most of the characters that I I can see or would care to see redeem themselves are, are at least some way down that redemptive path, whether it's Elektra or a couple, or Magneto or somebody else. Um, but but maybe the craziest redemptive arc I've seen was Apocalypse, basically becoming a mysterious good guy, kind of in uh, X Men. I mean it. They've essentially presented Krakoa as a fresh start for everyone, and nobody trusts him, but he he keeps some secrets, but he essentially, he he's along the lines of Magneto where he does what's best for mutant kind, and now he has an outlet for that, and actually sacrifices a lot for mutant kind and saves a lot of mutants, so it's pretty pretty interesting arc there, but I, I your question's a tough one because I think the comics have already decided for us... <laughs> Who we will or won't see a lot of them are slow burns that are that are 10 years in the making which is sad because you mentioned electra and electra in current daredevil continuity is daredevil and is awesome almost a better daredevil than, than matt is so it's interesting because <laughs> i more like effective. more effective because definitely she more effective get but again it's like i would love to see her fulfill a role as maybe a superhero of like her own role, but it's not going to happen. Dang, I don't know. I feel like I want to say I don't know. I want to say Peacemaker, but I'm pretty sure he's a good guy. I just haven't seen the movie yet. Gosh. Bloodsport seemed cool too. I don't know why I'm picking these Suicide Squad members from a movie that I'm not going to watch for a while. You know what? Deathstroke. Deathstroke's a good one. And I think you're more... It's, it's possible... Or, ta or Taskmaster. Actually, yes. 
That's a great one. Taskmaster. Nice. So I guess in conclusion, and thank you guys for hanging out with us for so long tonight. Um, why are redemptive arcs so appealing? And I'll, I'll go ahead and answer that for us. I believe that is because each of us believes that, you know, we need to be redeemed for one reason or another. We're acutely aware of our own flaws. And when you see a character who is somewhere on that path to redemption, uh, we can relate to them one way or the other, knowing that it takes a certain amount of effort to to change who you are and, and to fix your own flaws. And I believe, genuinely, that's why these characters are more compelling than your Paragon heroes who are presented as flawless. I've made that point a couple times throughout our podcasts, and I think it kind of brings it to a, a, a conclusion here. Uh, redemptive arcs are, are crucial to comic books and are extremely relatable. All right. Thanks for joining us this week. Next week, we're going to talk about bad guy team-ups to do good things. And by then, we'll probably maybe have come up with a better title. But uh, <laughs> stay tuned. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs>